and welcome to the Radical History Podcast. Today's episode, Kurds at War, The Birth of the PKK, Part 1. Between 2014 and the end of 2015, the world stood transfixed as the small city of Kobani in northern Syria came under siege by the Islamic State Army. Having already conquered a large swathe of war-torn Syria and much of northern Iraq, it seemed for a time as though ISIS were unstoppable. But Kobani didn't fall. In fact, its defenders not only resisted the jihadist onslaught, but actually forced ISIS to retreat and then went on the offensive. Those men and women who fought so tenaciously against the Islamic State were, in the majority, Kurdish, either from northern Syria itself or members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, from Turkey, who crossed the border to assist their beleaguered compatriots. Both the PKK and the Democratic Union Party, the most important member of the coalition government ruling the liberated Kurdish areas of northern Syria, derived their beliefs and ideology, a mix of libertarian socialism, feminism and a concept called democratic confederalism, from the writings of the PKK founder Abdullah Öcalan, currently imprisoned on the island of Imrali. While the PKK and Kurdish nationalism more generally have only recently leapt into the public consciousness, the roots of the organisation stretch back to the 1970s. Today, we will tell the story of the founding of the PKK and the beginning of an insurgency that would last for more than 30 years and, indeed, remains ongoing. Abdullah Öcalan was born around 1947 in the Turkish province of Sanlıurfa. The area was ethnically mixed, with Armenians, Kurds and Turks all mingling together and sometimes intermarrying. This was also the case for Öcalan, who was of mixed Turkish-Kurdish descent. The other distinguishing feature of the province was its poverty and economic backwardness, with the area characterised by primitive and badly paid agricultural work. Despite coming from a poor background, even by the standards of his own village, and growing up in a deeply dysfunctional household, Ochlan's natural intelligence allowed him to do well at school. Ironically, his initial ambition was to join the Turkish military, but he failed to get the requisite results, opting instead to move to Ankara in order to attend vocational school. It is worth noting that it's entirely possible that, at this point, Ochlan likely did not even consider himself a Kurd, or speak Kurdish, and, as such, might not have regarded a career in the Turkish military as a source of internal conflict. That this should be the case was by no means unusual. While the Kurdish language and customs were still widely used in many parts of Turkey, Kurdish identity itself was often weak, porous, and rarely displayed publicly. Indeed, to do so was potentially dangerous. Decades of government policy had been geared towards the elimination of any sense of Kurdish distinctiveness. By the middle of the century, these policies appeared, on the surface at least, to have been effective. One visiting diplomat, who travelled extensively throughout Iraqi and Turkish Kurdistan in the mid-1950s, commented of southeast Turkey that, quote, I did not catch the faintest whiff of Kurdish nationalism, which the most casual observer in Iraq cannot fail to notice, end quote. At this point, many listeners will be asking the question, what exactly does it mean to be a Kurd? It was a question that Ochlan and many other young people, particularly students, were beginning to ask themselves in the 1960s. Without descending too far into the annals of history, we should attempt to answer that question as best we can. Kurdishness 
is primarily defined by language and indicates those who speak a group of distinct dialects more closely related to Iranian languages like Farsi than they are to Turkish or Arabic. The designation is, importantly, not a religious one. While most Kurds practice Sunni Islam, there are also Shia, Alevi and even Jewish Kurds. Most Kurds live in the contiguous mountain region known as Kurdistan, which is spread across the states of Iran, Iraq, Syria and Turkey, four countries in which Kurds form a significant minority population. Kurdish tribes have long inhabited the mountains of the Near East, maintaining greater or lesser degrees of independence from the states surrounding them. With the establishment of the Ottoman Empire, the Sublime Port employed Kurdish chiefs or amirs to protect their borders in exchange for titles and relative autonomy, a situation that prevailed until the 19th century. As the Ottoman Empire began to disintegrate, centralising sultans sought to bring Kurdish emirs under more direct control, leading to conflict. These conflicts were not, as of yet, ethnic or nationalist in nature, at least not entirely. Kurdish nationalism, like Arabic and Turkish nationalism, would not fully develop until much later in the 19th century. After the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, which ushered in a constitution and a multi-party democracy within the Ottoman state, nationalist politics began to strengthen and develop within the empire, as the idea that Turkish, Armenian, Arabic or Kurdish identity might be more important than religious or dynastic affiliation began to catch on leading to the emergence of distinctively Kurdish nationalist organisations. However, these nationalist organisations had little impact in the mountain villages where most Kurds lived. For the Kurdish sheikhs and emirs, what was important was the fact that they were Sunni Muslim subjects of the Caliph. National or ethnic identity, Turkish or Kurdish, often had little significance for them. With the fall of the last sultan, Mehmed VI in 1922, however, these older affiliations and beliefs swiftly lost their significance. The Turkish state that succeeded the Ottoman Empire represented a very different entity to the Sultanate. Under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and his successors, a new generation of Turkish nationalists attempted to create a secular nation-state out of what had previously been an ethnically mixed polity based on religion, millet and dynasty. According to one commentator, the independent Turkish government established in 1923 sought to, quote, de-emphasise linguistic, religious and ethnic distinctions to create a unified and homogenous nation-state, end quote. In other words, to turn Ottoman Anatolia into Turkey in fact as well as in name. This task, however, was not an easy one. While much of the new state was ethnically Turkish, there remained significant populations of Greeks, Kurds, Jews and Armenians, especially in the east of the country. The Kurds, no longer bound to an empty throne, rebelled frequently against the authority of Ataturk's Turkey, with several large-scale uprisings during the 1920s and 30s. One of these revolts even led to the first self-declared Kurdish state, the Republic of Ararat, which was swiftly crushed by the Turkish army. While these rebellions were disunited and regional, they clearly signalled the arrival and solidifying of a distinct Kurdish identity, albeit one that was yet to be characterised by anything approaching national unity. In the wake of these uprisings, the Turkish government redoubled its efforts to assimilate the country's national minorities. From the 1930s on, measures such as a surname law 
which insisted on ethnic minorities adopting Turkish surnames, the enforcement of the Turkish language as the sole acceptable mode of communication in public life, and even forced resettlement, were introduced in order to assimilate non-Turks. Meanwhile, large parts of Turkish Kurdistan remained under military occupation. Abdullah Öcalan moved to Ankara in 1966. He was not alone. The mechanisation of agriculture in the 1950s had forced thousands of young Kurds to emigrate to cities beyond Kurdistan itself, and soon Kurdish enclaves began to appear in the great cities of Anatolia. Among these internal migrants, there were signs of a re-emergent Kurdish nationalism. These urban Kurds chafed at the centre of their identity. Indeed, they were officially characterised as mountain Turks rather than Kurds, their very existence silence in official discourse. David McDowell, on whose work I'm relying heavily, and whose book is by far the best introduction to modern Kurdish history, quotes one of these migrants. Quote, Until I arrived in Kutaya, I did not know that I was Kurdish. We used to throw stones at those calling us Kurds in Diyarbakir. We came to Kutaya and they called us Kurds. They baited us with, where's your tail? Going to school was an ordeal. Then we understood our villagers were right. We were Kurds. End quote. In late 1960s Ankara, Ochlan would have encountered some of this nationalist revival. Young Kurds were smoking Kurdish cigarettes, discussing the national question in cafes and on the streets, and organising meetings and demonstrations, demanding recognition and democratic rights for the Kurdish southeast. Ochlan was not yet a Kurdish nationalist, though he did later say that, quote, these meetings did affect me, even if it was just in a small way. It was not only Kurdish nationalism that was experiencing a resurgence in Turkey. Radicalism on the right and on the left was also strengthening during the 1960s and 1970s. On the right, ultra-nationalist organisations like the Nationalist Movement Party, MHP, and its paramilitary wing, the Grey Wolves, carried out a campaign of terror against their political opponents. On the left, students and trade unionists became increasingly politicised. Legally, this trend was expressed in the growth of the Turkish Workers' Party, which was formed by Turkish trade unionists and led by the Marxist lawyer Mehmet Ali Eber. However, many leftists were sceptical of the possibilities offered by legal activity. And they had a point. The Turkish Workers' Party was banned twice following military coups in 71 and 81, and even when civilian governments were in power, leftist groups faced continued repression both from the state and the radical right. Accordingly, many sought to change the country through armed revolutionary action. Ocalan was 21 years old at the time of the 1971 coup, working in the land registry office in Istanbul. He was increasingly interested in politics, but according to his own recollections, was unconvinced by either the radical left or the Kurdish organisations he had come into contact with. The former he saw as paying insufficient attention to the Kurdish national question, and the latter as neither politically sophisticated nor politically radical enough to seriously take on the might of the Turkish state. Ocalan's real entry into politics came one year later when, now a student in Ankara, he joined his fellow classmates when they protested against the army. This protest was suppressed and Ocalan arrested and sent to Mamak military prison. There he found himself surrounded by leftist political prisoners. Books were easily smuggled into Mamak, 
Discussions and debates about all aspects of politics and theory continued long after Lights Out, and plans for the future were laid out, critiqued and revised. The atmosphere was almost that of a university behind bars. Ochlan participated in these debates, and he became convinced of the need for armed revolution, but he also continued to be irritated by the lack of discussion relating to the Kurdish question. At best, the young Turkish leftists imprisoned with him considered the Kurds an afterthought, if they thought about them at all. After seven months in Mamak, Ocalan was released. This time had been formative for the future PKK founder, as he later commented, quote, This was my transition to becoming a professional revolutionary. Previously a rather quiet and thoughtful young man, Ocalan now became an ardent, active and outspoken activist who argued for the necessity of a Kurdish national liberation movement. This movement was still little more than a pipe dream, but Ocalan now had a small circle of co-thinkers meeting regularly in cramped student accommodations who agreed with his perspectives. Initially hoping to cooperate with Turkish leftists, Ocalan still felt that none of the existing groups were sufficiently serious about the question of Kurdistan. The Kurds, he decided, would have to go it alone. Accordingly, at a meeting in 1975, Ocalan and 15 others quit university to devote themselves full-time to founding a Marxist-Leninist organisation that would commit itself to the cause of Kurdish liberation. Importantly, they would not do this among the Kurdish diaspora in the cities, but would go directly to the towns and villages of Kurdistan itself to win the locals to their cause. Ocalan at first sought allies, but the other Kurdish organisations snubbed him. As Eliza Marcus writes, quote, Although Ocalan, despite his inexperience, believed he was ready to lead the first successful Kurdish uprising in history, more established Kurdish activists were not convinced. This was hardly surprising. After all, who the hell was Abdullah Ocalan? He had no pedigree as an activist no standing or reputation in Kurdistan itself, a handful of followers, and now he wants us to follow him into the hills to start a revolution? Get real. Other Kurdish activists made the point that Kurds had rebelled before, and that each of these rebellions had been brutally crushed by the army, often leading to dire consequences for the defeated, soldier and civilian alike. Better to focus on political organisation, even if state repression made this difficult. Events in Iraq seemed to confirm this analysis. There, a 15-year Kurdish rebellion under the leadership of Mustafa Barzani had been defeated in 1975, leading Barzani and thousands of his followers to flee across the border to Iran. Ocalan looked at the defeat of Barzani a little differently. For him, Barzani's mistake had been his reliance on American and Iranian support. His refusal to call for full Kurdish independence, and his failure to challenge tribal leaders and landowners within the Kurdish community itself. Ocalan's movement would not rely on the great powers, nor would it limit its demands. Above all, it was to be socialist, seeing traditional Kurdish elites as their enemies just as much as the Turkish state. On the next episode, we will see Abdullah Ocalan put this vision into practice in spectacular fashion. Thanks for listening. As usual, 
please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Twitter at History Radical. And if you want to contact us by email, it's radicalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>